Well, it is good. It's good to see you all this morning, and thank you for being here, um, and thank you for your prayers. I actually feel like whatever's happened to me these past few uh, weeks is starting to let up a little bit, and so um, I hope that at least I won't fall maybe during communion. <laughs> so um, anyway, thanks for being here. We're going to look uh, again at uh, the book of Romans. And uh, thanks for the encouragement. I've had many of you tell me that it's been a good uh, series and that you've enjoyed it. Uh, and I know that we're, we're going to spend a lot of time in this book. And in between some of those times, uh, Dawson will be uh, preaching uh, to just give us a little bit, give me a break, but certainly you as well. If you have your Bibles, open them to Romans chapter 5. And if you don't, it's printed in your bulletin. I'm using the New Living Translation, and I'm doing that intentionally uh, because it's very easy to understand. And where there's any, where the NLT may go off a little bit, I'm checking it with the other translations. And so don't be afraid to uh, give this translation your consideration. It's actually very, very good. And a lot of the scholars that were on the uh, committee that, that did this were people that, uh, that I knew. Uh, or at least new through seminary. So it's a good, good translation. Let's begin reading. We're just going to read the first 11 verses of, of chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been made right with God, in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. And we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us, because He has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with His love. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at, the, at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now most people would not be willing to die for an upright person. But though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored, by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you read the book of Romans, and if you just read it through, and I do recommend that you do that, sit down one, maybe this afternoon, Sunday, uh, and just read through the book of Romans. It doesn't take long. 
And you will see these, it's notoriously difficult to outline the book because Paul is speaking to a scribe, what they call an amanuensis. And even at the end, he identifies himself. And, and so he's, he's just uh, speaking from his heart, and the scribe is writing down what he says. And so Paul goes and he moves around a lot. He's not thinking in, in outline form. He's thinking in pastoral form, making his case for all humanity, then for the Jews, then for the Gentiles and the Jews. And what he's saying is that as you look out around you and you read these things in a story like uh, the, this horrific event in Uvalde uh, or anywhere else, the, uh, the store up in Buffalo, uh, Parkland School, these other places where horrific things happen, or you look beyond our shores and you see the devastation in parts of the world that we here in America can't even begin to imagine, Ukraine and Syria and uh, Sudan and all these places. You pick, pick your place. Wadis, across the border, just a stone's throw from where we live. You see these horrific cruelty and evil. And people always ask the question, why did God create the world the way he did? Why did we want to blame him. And I've told you week by week, the world is the way it is, not because of God, but because of us. And Paul explains it in Romans chapter 1, 18 through 32, very brief little passage, but he comes at it hard with the, with the most profound and rich theology that you can imagine. He just goes at it and it is irrefutable. No one, it doesn't matter what you believe, you don't have to be a Christian or anything, read that. And you will understand why the world is the way it is. Because we as human beings have suppressed the truth and we have reached out, we've pushed down with all our might and we reach out and replace what God has told us with a lie. And it infects every human being, doesn't matter. It affects Christians. It, it devastated, absolutely devastated ancient Israel and Judah. And I just finished reading in my Bible reading through the book of Isaiah and 66 chapters. And I have to tell you that that book is as relevant today as it was then. Really incredible. Now, we make much of the fall. You know, we fell, the Adam and Eve messed up, and we, we've continued that pattern, so we have are all guilty, Paul says in 3.23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, not one. So he says humanity's in, a, in trouble. And it's not trouble because we slipped. It's trouble because we have actively and passionately resisted God. And if you don't think you've resisted God, then you don't really understand your own heart. But I think everyone that's honest, you look inside and you go, man, there's so many places I've resisted God. Little things, big things. Even when I'm trying to be religious and be a good at church, you know, I'm, I've still got that, that thing going on in here that I can't, I can't manage it. We make much of the fall. But then comes chapter 5. And it explodes with rich 
meaning that just permeates anyone who will listen, anyone who will take it in. You see, in in chapter 3, verse 21, he says, but now, and he gives us an incredible exposition of righteousness by faith, but now God has shown us a way. And you think, well, man, we can't get any better than that. Then comes chapter 5, and he says, Therefore, since we have been made right, now that we have accepted, received, put this this truth into our lives, made it part of our spiritual DNA, now that it's there, what is the fruit? How does it explode? Not only in our life, but into the world around us, at least... How's it supposed to work? And look what he says. Therefore, since we have been made right or justified in God's sight by faith, these things are going to happen. So Paul, in this, in this little brief 11 chapters, what Paul does is he talks, first of all, about what already has happened. Then he goes down a few le- verses later. He talks about what has not yet happened come to pass. And those of you that have been at Christ the King for any length of time, you know that I'm always talking about what we call the already and not yet. If you don't understand the already and not yet about Scripture, the Bible simply doesn't make sense. So when you start in Genesis and you look at Genesis, already God had created His kingdom on earth and put His his uh, two people there, and he said, now be fruitful, multiply, go into the world and, and make the rest of the world a garden. You see, the rest of the world was tohu v'boz. It was chaos and formless and void. And he said, go out there and, and make it a garden. Spread, uh, the, multiply. Take dominion over the chaos and the evil and the formless and bring form and beauty and light to the rest of the earth. So already God established His kingdom. But then in chapter 3, they go down the tubes, they fall, so the kingdom is not yet, not happening. He waits, finds Abraham, and Abraham, the promise of the kingdom is made, but not yet. And so it goes. David brings in the kingdom already, the kingdom. His son Solomon takes over, and you think you have consummation. It's going to happen Oh my goodness, the streets are paved with gold. We just throw silver out, make mountains out of silver because it's so worthless. Gold everywhere, everybody, army, everyone is subdued. Not yet. And Jesus comes in Mark chapter 1 and he says, I'm going to preach the gospel. The king has come. I'm him. And his disciples thought the kingdom would come right then, but not yet. And if you're living here today and you're a Christian, you are living in that period of not yet. We still have pain. We still have struggles. We still have these things that come against us. Paul knows what they are. He knows it personally. And so our job here in the church, call you together, everyone come together for just an hour or so on Sunday morning so that you can hear the good news that touches your life now, today, as you go out into the world around you. You can make sense of it. I understand it's not yet. I'm I'm in this. I'm in a battle. And I'm not going to give up. And so...
Paul gives us assurance in the already. He gives us assurance of a new relationship. Assurance of suffering. And finally, he gives us assurance of God's love. Those are the things that we're going to talk about probably throughout the rest of Romans. But specifically, in this time that we live, the not yet, the kingdom has already been established. Jesus came. He inaugurated the kingdom. He gave the keys of the kingdom to his apostles. And he said, the gates of hell will not prevail against you. Now you go. The same mandate that he gave to Adam and Eve, he gives to his apostles and his church. He says, now you go and cover the earth. And folks, we've done sometimes a good job and often not a good job. The church has a lot of, a lot of hard things to answer for. But throughout history, there's always been a remnant that has been faithful and stayed faithful. Sometimes they were, sometimes they were uh, uh, Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox people. And sometimes they were Protestants of various sorts. And, and sometimes, and most of them were Presbyterians. And then later... <laughs> oh, dear God. All right, you know I'm kidding. I mean, there's always been people that are faithful. In every tradition, every Christian tradition... And then there's been the other stuff going on. And Paul addresses those as well in this letter and in others. But listen to what he says. We'll look at these three things. Assurance of, um, of, of a new relationship, of suffering, of God's love. And then we go into the not yet, the future. And that's verses 9 through 11. But we'll get to that in a minute. So follow along with me. Look at verse 1 and 2. They both start with the same basic phrase. Therefore, since we have been made right or justified in God's sight by faith, and, and verse 2, because of our faith, Christ has brought us into, what is that? Well, look at what fills in in verse 1 and 2. A new relationship, and he outlines this saying, <clears throat> we have a new status, a new status, a new, <clears throat> if you will, a new identity. We have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Peace with God is not the same as the peace of God. You know, we're told to have the peace of God in our hearts, reigning in our hearts, and that's great. We need that to be sure. But if you don't have peace with God, then you're never going to have the peace of God. Because the peace with God means that there was some time that there was an active hostility between God and us. And I have talked to too many people, folks, and they say, I, I wasn't mad at God. I didn't have anything against God. You know, he's up there doing whatever he's doing. I'm not even sure he exists. But if he does, I'm not mad at him. I understand that. There's no reason to be mad at a God that you create in your own mind. Because he'll, he'll fit right into your whatever. You've just made him up. You just, it just comes up in, from you. Just a God you made. It's an idol. Why would you be mad at the God you made, your idol? You wouldn't be mad at that God. But I promise you, if you meet the God of the Bible, it's going to just really irritate you. We cannot stand that God. And if you think you can, I even struggle. I'm a pastor and I'm a holy person. I'm paid to be holy. 
That's right. And I got to tell you, there's times when I just don't understand. I mean, I go, Lord, I love you, but man, you are really out there. What is going on? Like Dawson prayed. How long, O Lord? How long will you let these murderous killings go? Don't you have the control, the power to do something about it? And you know, he does. And what he's doing, I don't know. I'm not called to figure that out. In fact, it wouldn't fit in my puny head. They did an MRI of my brain. There was nothing there. It was empty. I think about it. Just because we don't understand it, in our puny thinking, no matter how intelligent we think we are, just because we don't understand it doesn't mean it has no meaning. And Paul is saying, you have a new relationship, a new status. In other words, whatever hostility was there, to whatever degree it was there, Jesus Christ has taken that away. We have peace with God because of what Jesus has done for us. Do you see that? You can't take Jesus out of any equation if you're talking about the God of the Bible because the entire Old Testament was written. The entire Old Testament was written with Jesus Christ in view. It was all going to narrow down, like I told you, to a funnel, to where it was just one man. And the burden of all humanity was going to fall on one man. Like it did on Adam. And Adam crumbled under that pressure, and Jesus rose up under that pressure, and in His weakness, He made peace with God. The hostility, whatever hostility there was, He took. Where? On the cross. He absorbed that. So we have a new status, a new relationship. Look at the next. We have a place of undeserved privilege. That's the word grace. A place of grace where we now stand. You see, you're standing not in a place of hostility where you're vulnerable to the slings and arrows of misfortune. You're not in a place where you can be uh, robbed or taken away or even die. You're not in a place where you can even die. Because when you die, if your body dies, you don't die. God has promised us, as He does in these verses, a new standing, a new place to stand. We have a new status. We have a new standing, a place of undeserved grace wherein you are standing. And when we're out there in the world and all this junk is coming down on us, it's really hard to, to, to hold on to that promise. And he, said, he tells us why, because of suffering. We'll get that in a minute. And then he says, now, right now, listen to me, please. He says, now we have a new future. Even though it's not come yet, we have the hope, the confident, joyful, looking forward, in hope. In the original, it's in hope. We're, we're a place of hope to share God's glory. Now that you will never understand. There's no way to even begin to explain what that means. Sharing God's glory. It's beyond us. But whatever it is, it's way better than what we have right now. It's going to be something that cannot be taken away, and it's going to be something that is going to transform you at the moment of your death 
your body, your soul, your mind, every part of you is going to explode in a new being. New body, same correspondent body. It's not going to be a, a, some kind of a, a ball of light in the air. It's going to be your body. He'll reconstitute it from wherever it is, in the ground, in ashes, or, you know, if they dump you out at sea or drop you from an airplane, uh, whatever it is. I want my boys to put my ashes in the gas tank of my dirt bike and just go out and blow me out over all the, you know. That's what I want. Well, God's going to reconstitute you. But He's going to do something to that body so it doesn't ever die. It's always sharing somehow, some mysterious kind of, I don't know, His glory. Anyway, figure it out. It's unbelievable. A new future, confident, joyful, looking forward. In other words, hope, biblical hope in the Bible is, is only, it's only referring to future. It's not referring to, well, maybe it might happen. I'm really hopeful this lottery ticket hits. It's nothing like that. It's just future. And you put your hope in it because it's certain. It's absolutely certain. And folks, the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if it's not certain, then we Christians are the most miserable human beings that could ever possibly exist because we're going through our lives of suffering and all this mess believing a lie, fooling ourselves. And there are days when I, I struggle with that. Am I fooling myself? Is it possible that I've deceived myself? Maybe just wishful thinking that when I die, my eyes are going to open and I'm going to see Jesus. And folks, the only thing that's going to hold you in place, the only thing that will anchor you, is Him. Not some abstract idea about God, but Jesus Christ Himself. So these benefits, these three benefits, a new status, a new standing, and a new future, these things become part of the, the anchors of your soul for the already as we look forward to the not yet. Tim Keller said in his, his study, which I'm using for this, uh, along with R.C. and a couple others, these three benefits, these three new status, new standing, new future, these three benefits of justification are, listen, to this, this is brilliant, are the three tenses of our salvation. We are in Christ. Listen. We are in Christ. Our past is redeemed. That means our old record of rebellion and sin is put away and we have peace with God. Our present is redeemed right now. We have a personal friendship with God. Even when I'm mad at Him or I don't understand Him, I know that we're still friends. Because Jesus promised. Not because I feel anything or not because I hear voices or nothing like that. I just know it because Jesus said, I'll do this for you. I will take the hostility so that God can be your friend. Amazing. It really is amazing. Our present is redeemed. We have a personal friendship with God and our future, listen, our future is redeemed. We have the promise of glory. We don't just hope that we have the promise of glory. It is there. It's fixed. 
And as Christians, we have promised that we will believe, that we will trust Him. Faith is simply a decision to trust Him. It is not a feeling. It's not something you have to gin up and try to find, you know, I don't have enough faith or I don't have faith or I wish I had the faith like you. You don't want my faith. I don't want anybody in this church to have my faith. I want you to have faith in what? Or who? Who? Jesus Christ. Put your faith there. Then whatever little junky faith you have, it just explodes and takes on everything from Him. Even when you don't feel it, especially when you don't feel it. So there you are, folks. There's this new status, new standing, a new future, and this has got to hold you in place because of the next few verses. Three and four. The assurance of suffering. Yeah, we have assurance of a new relationship, but let me tell you, the Apostle Paul did not shy away from talking about suffering. Look at 3 and 4. We can rejoice when experiencing problems, trials. We know that suffering, if you don't quit, if you just keep your head down and go through it, maybe you have lots of questions, maybe you're lamenting, maybe you're shaking your fist at God and saying, you did this to me, I don't understand. He's not going to hold his nose, not going to get mad. In fact, he'll move towards you and, and embrace you. Read the Psalms. Eighty of the Psalms or more have, are nothing but lament and complaint. Honesty with God, saying, you know, I don't get you at all. But at least you're engaged. You're not turning away from Him. This is where we die. We go to die in that cemetery of rejecting God when things get hard. Or we are hurting with intense pain. And we don't know why. If you turn to Him, there's salvation. You turn away from Him and there you go to die. And it's a horrible death. Oh, he'll go with you. He'll never leave you or forsake you. But it's a terrible way to go. Instead, make the decision every day of your life, I don't know what's going on. The doctor said I have cancer. I'm going to follow you. Not naively. Not wishful thinking. I'm going to follow you get my treatments, do whatever is necessary, I'm going to follow you because you went to the grave for me. Now folks, I, you know, that is what being a Christian is. It's seeing Jesus, your Savior, in every single part of the windshield of your life. As you look out, you're seeing this man who gave his life for you, who was also God and made peace with you. In your suffering, we can rejoice now when we experience problems and trials. We know that suffering produces endurance. You stay put. Why? Because He stayed put. You don't try to grit your teeth and bear it. In fact, you may not be able to bear it. Sometimes He does give us more than we can, than we can take. That scripture is mistranslated and misapplied. Sometimes He gives us way more than we can handle because He's there with you. 
He's not putting it on you to see how you're doing. He puts it on you or He lets it happen to you because He knows that if you will trust Him, listen folks, if you will just trust Him, you'll come out with a stronger character, more faith, more trust, more maturity. He's not going to ever leave you. He's going to bring you through strength of character and that will build a confident hope of salvation. You see, all of us are going to face a day. I think we sang it in one of our hymns. My days are numbered. You know your days are numbered, right? Can, it, can anybody say amen to that? There's a, there's a date out there. I don't know where it is on a calendar someplace. And that's the day you're going to die. doesn't matter how many leafy greens you eat. I mean, from our point of view, it could be very helpful to eat lots of leafy greens. But there's a day that we're going to die, whenever that day is. And that day's coming. And on that day, you're either going to have confidence and hope of salvation, or you're going to be absorbed with fear and terror that you can't imagine. I've seen both as a pastor. Um, I don't even like to think about it. But let me say a couple things about suffering before we finish. I'm probably going to to dedicate a whole sermon next week to suffering because it's just too much uh, here. But let me read, read you something again and pay close attention to this. This is also from Tim Keller. He had some really good, he wrote a whole book on suffering that is probably nothing like it. But listen to what he says here. Paul does not say that we rejoice for our sufferings. James, same thing. I told you that when we went through James. We don't rejoice for the suffering. That would be masochism. That's what Keller says. But, listen, it is possible to rejoice for the suffering. Some people need to feel punished in order to deal with their sense of unworthiness. So they want to rejoice for suffering because they want to feel or project, I'm suffering for Jesus, I'm suffering, let everybody know. They need to feel punished to deal with their sense of unworthiness as if you were worthy before the suffering. Do you realize how what pathetic thinking that is? I'm so worthy and now I'm suffering. No, we have always been unworthy. I wonder why it's not worse for me. Not better. I wonder how come I don't have more suffering. Not less. See, my view, and this has taken a long time and even struggle with it now, my view of myself is not low down here. My view of myself is low related to my sinfulness and what I was before Jesus saved me. And He lifts me up out of that. How did He get me out of that pit? How does He get you out of your pit? How does He do it? He's got to go down there and get you. You think He stands at the top and goes, uh, here I am, come on, make your way up here. What a pathetic religion that would be. That's the religion of every religion. I don't want to be down in my mess and have the God or whatever up there going, come on, up, 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 make your way. No, man, you never hit rock bottom. He's already down there. He's been there. And when you hit rock bottom, there he is. He's underneath. You never hit rock bottom. He lifts you up. 
This is what Paul is saying. But it is possible, Keller says, some people need to feel punished in order to deal with their unworthiness and guilt. They they do something in their mind. You know people like that. Maybe you're one of them. Others get a superior attitude towards people who have had an easier life. Oh, look at them. I, you know, I can't believe it. I'm suffering over here. And look at all. And then they develop anger and uh, they see these people. They start putting them down and saying, ah, these people are superficial and ungrateful. Three, it is possible to use suffering as a work. So you're suffering. Something bad is happening. You say to God, you know, I'm suffering for you, Jesus. Um, I, I, I won't go to Starbucks this week uh, except for three times. I'll suffer for you. I'll fast Starbucks three times this week for you, Jesus, only you. Man. All right. It is possible to use suffering as a work, another form of justification by works. All right. And fourth, some feel God owes them a favor, acceptance, because they've had a hard life. Life. This is victim mentality. This is always wanting to be a victim. And if you find yourself always feeling like a victim, you're denying the reality of a new standing, a new status, a new, a new future. We are not victims, folks. We have, I mean, if, if someone came in the church and shot me dead, I would not be his victim. No one can touch us. No, we don't go around stupid and say, I'm going to go look for a bullet and see if it'll hit me. That's not what we're doing. We are living in hope, living in faith, living with our eyes trained on Jesus, especially when we're suffering. And that brings us finally to God's love. He's giving us assurances. Paul is saying, this is for sure. Everything else in your life is not for sure. I've been struggling. I think some of you noticed. I can't walk and whatever. And so I've gone in. I've had four MRIs. They have, they have MRI'd me from top to bottom. And I can't be sure of what's going to show up. Maybe nothing, which is even worse, because then they're going to start looking elsewhere. And you know what? Every time I go to the doctor, they find something. I've told Marty V, I'm going to quit going to the doctor. Maybe I'll be well. <laughs> I mean, crazy. You cannot be sure of anything. Young, when you're young and strong and, you know, all that, you, you, you don't fear anything. But let suffering and hardship come into your life and then what? Paul adds to that the assurance of God's love. Listen to this. This hope... This hope of what Christ has done in and for us, being with us, taking away the peace of God, all this. He's reaching back and he's saying, everything I've said to you so far, this hope does not lead us to disappointment, or in Greek it says to shame. In other words, you can feel shame or disappointment when you give in and you suffer willingly, or you just hold on and you, you, know, you, you say, okay, I'm going to, I know God is in control. I'm going to trust Him for this. And associated with that comes some suffering. 
And you might say, oh man, I, I, I'm so stupid. They're taking advantage of me. They're going to use me. They're doing this and this and this. You're feeling shame. I've got to stand up for myself. I've got to do this now. No, he says this love for, that God has for us is not a disappointment. It is not shameful. For you to go ahead and trust him at your own expense to love your neighbor as yourself. And maybe, just maybe. Why? Because we know God loves us. Verse 3. We know He loves us and given us His Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with love. You see that whatever love you have in there is something He's planted. And it's meant to be groomed and, and nurtured so that it will grow. He's put that love in us. That's His love in us. What about His love for us? That's verse 6. When we were utterly helpless, we've talked about this numerous times, numerous times this year. When we were utterly helpless, that means dead. Utterly helpless. Christ came at the right time to die for us sinners. Many people would not die for an upright person, but maybe someone especially good, maybe you would give your life. What he's saying is, you're not going to die for anybody. Bad or good, but especially not bad. You're not going to give your life up for somebody bad. And what does Jesus do? Most people would not die for an upright person, but God showed or demonstrated or made it known to the entire universe His great love for us by sending His only Son to die for us. Listen, while we were still sinners... This is why, folks, I told you that on the worst day of your life, God loved you. On the worst day of your life, when you were, whatever you were doing, the worst, that's the day Jesus said, I will die for you. Pick the worst day. Pick the worst day. You won't have any other worst days. That was the worst day. And there He is on your worst day. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this is something you have to remind yourself of every single day. Because suffering is present. So let me finish and talk just quickly. And we'll, we'll go over this again a little bit next week. But what about the not yet, the future? These are verses 9 through 11. Since we've been made right in God's sight by Jesus' blood, verse 9. Since we have friendship with God, restored, reconciled by the death of His Son, while we were still His enemies. Verse 11, So now we can rejoice in this wonderful new relationship with God. This is how He prefaces all this future. And here's what He says about it. Your future, my future. He will save us from God's condemnation. You see, there's wrath out there. God's mad at what we've done to His world. When he returns, he's going to go, where are my blue whales? I put a whole bunch of blue whales down here. I want to know where they are. And we're going to hand him a, a, a bottle of perfume or some lotion and say, they're in here. Where are my redwood trees? Where are my forests? What did you do to my earth? Where are all these children that got slaughtered? I want to know. And mankind's not going to be able to answer those questions. We cannot and we will not answer them. And so as a Christian, we have to understand that He will save us from that wrath, that condemnation. 
Look at the second part of this. We will certainly be saved through the life of His Son. Why? Look at the end. Because our Lord Jesus has made us friends of God, reconciled us. How's He going to save us? Very quickly. Most of you will know what I'm going to say. How will He save you from wrath? How? Because He drank the cup of wrath for you. How are you certainly saved for the, through the life of His Son? Because when Jesus came and talked to John on the Isle of Patmos, He said, I was dead, but now I'm alive. That's how you know. Because our Lord Jesus has made us friends. You did not make friends with God. Don't even think you did. He made friends. He suffered the, dis, the dissolution of friendship so that He could make, make something for us. Not so it made possible that we could make something for ourselves. Are we crazy? The Scripture does not say that. It says He made it. He built the place. He was the reason. He was the foundation. He was the one that came and got you out of the pit. What did you contribute to your salvation? Say nothing. Nothing. You brought nothing to the table. You never will. It is purely by grace. That's why Luther said to Erasmus in one of his most caustic letters, you can't even spell the word grace. You don't even know what it is. Don't talk about grace as a helping hand. Don't talk about grace as, oh, He's going to make it possible. No, He comes and gets you from the depths of the earth by dying, taking your sin, going to a place you'll never see. Horror beyond our imagining and lifting us up and making friendship with God and presenting to God, listen, a bride without spot, wrinkle, and blemish. And when you get to that place, Nobody's going to be able to boast and say, wow, you know, he did 99.9% and I helped him out with this. What a joke. Now the glory for all of this goes to Jesus plus what? Nothing. And that's why you're going to be able to rejoice. You're going to be singing his praises and clicking his ear heels. And if you go to him and say, hey, how come you didn't do this and this and this? He's going to just pat you on the head and say, you know what? Go play in the river of living water and leave me alone. I mean, really? You think you could possibly comprehend? Even if he sat there and explained it to you for a million years, you're not going to understand. But you're going to know the depths of his love. They're going to be extreme. And everything is going to be clear. No fog. Will you trust Him? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your grace and mercy for making peace and doing all these things. I don't know how in the world we don't see it. Sometimes we just don't. But I pray that You'll give us endurance and strength of character and build us up in our faith so that we can endure and always look to you, the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.